This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. I work with clients to get to root cause healing and oftentimes that is gut healing with a meat based elimination diet. This week I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Robert Tsai West. This episode will be a two part series just because it's so long and I want to make sure that you guys listen to the whole thing because it's such invaluable information. All right, let's get right into the episode. Most of my、uh, carnivores don't you see. Um, we know that theoretically the level should be low, but they're not. Right. And, and so I think that's underutilization rather than underprovision. So I, I think that a large part of these vitamin excesses, and certainly B12, is not just consumption, it's lack of utilization. And that can make a lot of sense. I mean, so after listening to your conversation, you know, I've been doing this whole. Um, hypervitaminosis, are we doing too much in the carnivore space? And that is affecting like people's thyroid and other,、um, just an excess of nutrients. And then I heard your thing on nitrogen and uric acid. And I noticed that a lot of my clients have higher buns to our BUNs. And so I just started kind of doing my own research. And so I just wanted to share a few of mine.、Um, one thing, for example, was. Um, there are studies where they show that people that, are,、um, that were injected with different stress hormones, so not only cortisol, but like adrenaline, epinephrine, they start releasing a lot of excess nitrogen, or not excess, but release. So then they become like nitrogen、um, negative. So one thing is, I wonder if certain carnivores or people that are doing keto, they're overly fasting, right? So then they're not eating. That's、enough. the point. That's exactly it. That's、yeah. autophagy. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know. And so that's one.、Um, the other thing was,、um, you know, like obviously the oxalate one is one, but because some people want to reintroduce plants, so you don't think that's a big one. Okay.、Um, the other one yeah, was. Yeah, Demius, Demius, oxalate, yeah, yeah. The problem with oxalates is production, not absorption. Okay, okay. And, and there's been too much hype on the, on the oxalate overconsumption.、Uh, oxalates are on all the plants, and oh, you gotta. I, no. I, okay. Yeah, I used to eat.、Um, this is what I tell my clients.、Um, I used to eat 
one pound of spinach every day for 12 years of my plant-based life. And I never had the oxalate dumping. So I don't think everyone goes through it. I don't. Um, Well, the other thing that I thought was interesting is just that um, when you are eating higher fat and you are also fasting, you're going to produce more ketones. And I think there are some studies that show that at least initially, and this may be... So let me back you up there. Not necessarily. Oh, not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. Okay. Early on, yes, but, yes. but in, in um, your mature, your, what, do you, what did you call it? I love that word. The carnivore veterans. That. Yeah, I'm not the talking, you're right. I'm talking about the carnivore newbies that are still kind of insulin resistant. Yeah. That's where the ketones or the higher fat may compete with the uric acid dumping. So you're because right. Remember, if, ketones are just a fraction of okay. fat energy. The majority, 85, 90% of the fat that we use when we were in fat adapted ketosis are non-esterified fatty acids. Okay. The heart, for example, uses 85% of the fuel in a standard American diet or a carnivore is non-esterified fatty acids. Ketones are a tiny fraction of the energy. Sorry, I just want to segue that. No, no, no. That's that's, that's another misnomer because everybody's using these MCT oils and all these. They're trying to bump up the BHBs. The beta-hydroxybutyrate. Thank you, yes. And and it's... It really is anti-biologic to do that. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. So, sorry, I, I, I interrupted you there, but that was another <laughs> little issue. No, I, I totally agree. I, I mean, just the fact that coconuts within their fat, the MCT is a smaller portion. And of the MCTs, the C8 is the smallest portion, yet we are consuming only C8 as the fat. It doesn't make sense from us, you know, the way that a coconut is made. Um, so yeah, I totally. But the other interesting about fat: what are the only essential fats? Three omega and six omega fatty. And, and what that means, and, and this is what again a lot of people just don't understand. It's so obvious, but a lot of people don't think this way. If there are only two essential fats, right. and yet the human body needs a ton of structural fat and a ton of uh, uh, energy fat, it means that the human body can produce right. all the fat it needs. And the problem with the fats is that when we convert sugar to fat, we presume palmitic acid and lolaic acid. Whereas when we're eating fat, we've got more complex polyunsaturated, unsaturated, and saturated fat. It's all three. If you eat a steak, you're getting all three in. So it's a mis- as long as you're getting adequate three omega fatty acids in and some sixes, for the rest, the human body can interchange that. It really depends on the metabolic driving forces of what's driving those uh, uh, lipogenic pathways. Um, but, but all this, this focus on what type of fat is best to eat, and it really is a misnomer. Okay. And when you're eating meat, you're eating all three fats anyway. Yeah. So, and it's all interchangeable because the gut breaks it all down. So again, I mean, those are little places where we get into trouble. And I think um, a little, there's a beautiful paper here that I've got. It's actually in German. But uh, translated, it talks about uh, um, the protein, the the nitrogen balance. And I think that's really what we're talking about is that carnivores in positive nitrogen balance, where they're putting more nitrogen in than they need, that's a positive place to be. When you start going into negative nitrogen balance, where your body is taking, where where your liver needs nitrogen from your body, that's where you get into trouble. And so for the carnivores, eating, increasing your protein consumption, especially when you are uh, um, in that, that veteran carnivore state, high uh, uh, fat adapted, low, in, low insulin, um, you want to keep your nitrogen positive, uh, balance positive. And, you know, guys, I, and I know that, that I want to separate the personality from the science, but um, Ted Naiman is actually onto something when he talks about his uh, uh, 
protein ratio. Uh, Andreas Enfeldt, who's the head of um, the diet doctor from Sweden, uh, Andreas um, put out a very interesting tweet. It was this, after almost two decades on low carb, I apparently still have a lot to learn. In the last eight weeks, one change has resulted in 10 pound loss and over 10 inches down. And Andreas is tall as the Eiffel Tower, but he's this big. So for him to lose 10 pounds, uh, that's a lot. Over two inches down weight circumference, lean mass up, and the lowest blood pressure and fasting insulin I ever had, guess what changed? The answer is a higher protein energy ratio. Uh, More protein, still low carb, but limited added fats. So a lot of my clients um, grew up in the low fat craze, right? So they, when I see them, they don't eat ribeyes even. They don't even eat like the fattier cuts. So the 65% fat or 70% fat in terms of total calories, they eat the leaner meats. um, And they said they're essentially scared of fats. But these women also, because like you were talking about the stress hormone, the sex hormones are also produced from cholesterol. Um, they don't see improvements with their sleep, um, hot flashes, unless they start adding, and maybe it's more calories in general, but their proteins are sufficient. Maybe it's like the one gram of protein per one pound of ideal body weight, but the fat content is not enough. So they're maybe eating 60% fat or 55%. And so when I get them to eat about 70% fat, they start, they start healing, um, more of the, and so. And when they're just eating mostly protein, their blood sugars are high in the morning. Like no, there's, there's, no question, there's no question that early on, I would put those patients or okay. those folks in the non-carnival veterans phase. So I what, would put them on the earlier part. Okay, and, fair enough. You know, and then, so there's kind of this continuum where you go from the standard American diet where your biology is just awful and you're insulin resistant to slowly becoming insulin sensitive and then fat adapting. And that process takes anywhere to start takes six months to a year. Okay. So if you haven't been pure carnival for a year, you're not near that category yet. Okay. Once you get out uh, two, three years in, then you start to see the shift toward the nitrogen issue problem. Does that make sense? Yes. So okay. th- there's an improvement and then a worsening. And those folks tend to be uh, um, their lipid profiles are going up on the LDLs, up on the total cholesterols, up on the triglycerides. And that becomes a concern for me. So okay. all of these, it's not just one number, it's all of the metrics. And that's where they go from being super healthy to being sicker. I agree with you that the, the hot flashes and that kind of thing, you may or may not see relief. I mean, it's a normal process for women to go through menopause and experience change. So to what level, to what degree of change you see, that's different. I actually routinely measure DHEA, FSH, LH, testosterone, progesterone, and estradiol, which is the active form of estrogen, on every patient. And I've got all of the, I mean, I've got every one of these numbers uh, we've got over here. So I can look through my blood work and analyze all of that. And part of the problem with, this is where you want to talk female hormones somewhat sophisticatedly. Um, part of the issue is I see three profiles. And if you look at people on the standard American diet, you've got one group of women who develop polycystic ovarian syndrome. They are hyperinsulinemic when they become insulin resistant. They can produce massive amounts of insulin. Their testosterones are through the roof, but their estrogens and their their progesterones are low. Then we get the high estrogen, moderate progesterone, low testosterone women who are fat everywhere. They the, I hate to say this, but we're talking the classic female shape where there's fat everywhere and it's subcutaneous fat. The high testosterone women 
look a little bit more androgenic. They're a little more masculine. Right. They've got the big jowls. They've got the hair. They've got the, the more truncal fat. And then we've got the higher progesterone, moderate estrogen, low testosterone, and that's lipedema, where the fat collects from the waist down. Mm-hmm. And each of those three, three categories of women, and that's biologically predetermined, go through menopause differently. Okay. And, and that's so, that. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's so, and I mean, those are the numbers that I get. And there's a woman in Germany who works with lipedema, who corroborated, I was on a talk on the lipedema society with her, and she corroborated our observations on those three female hormones. So, I mean, all of that stuff, we work with a lot of infertile women with PCOS who are in infertility clinics trying to get rid of their PCOS. So we try to get that uh, testosterone lower. And that's where high fat carnivore is very, very useful. Right. Those women don't do very well with fat initially, but upping their fat ratio brings that testosterone number down pretty quickly because it suppresses insulin. So all of those are, this is not just one little guy on the internet saying, oh, this is the problem. We really have to look at that. And I don't have all the answers. In fact, the one thing I can categorically tell you is there's far more that I don't know than I do know. And, but these are observations of what we're seeing. And yeah. I'm just raising a bit of a red flag to the carnival veterans. Make sure you check your blood work. And more of the same thing is not necessarily a better thing. And we're studying these 100 plus patients now over time, because I've got the change over time to look at what changes we make. I, the one thing I know is there's a problem. The, the problem that I, I have that I don't know is how to fix it. Sure. So we're, I tell everyone, we're going to do an experiment with you. Let's see where you are in three or four months and see what's changed. And that's really what I'm looking to do. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Um, and, and I'm in agreement. I mean, I always say um, that I wouldn't have clients if carnivore works so beautifully, right? I would not have anybody to work with. Um, and I, I have some shared clients with you, which is funny. But um, so one thing that um, I also researched was that in order to have kind of nitrogen balance, it looks like one thing that I see just over and over is just the balance of stress, right? So if carnivores are over fasting under like, or what they call, they just are eating their one meal a day, or they're just, you know, eating whenever they're hungry, which they're probably never hungry, because they don't have this sugar spikes and stuff. And so sometimes people are under eating that can kind of throw off your nitrogen balance. But I've also seen some research and I could send you the papers, but if your body starts really uh, utilizing the amino acids well and breaking down the nitro, um, the proteins well, and in a very um, effective way, it actually shows in the science that you may not need, you, you would think that someone like Sean Baker would need more protein, but it actually shows that over the years, as your body matures and is able to use the um, protein smartly that you actually need less. What you're saying makes sense to lower the uric acid is um, maybe you need to be in a less ketogenic uh, um, autophagy state. But then over time, you also see, I, I wonder if the just over consuming protein will work long term. Because if people are also like Sean Baker's over time, their blood sugar may go up because they're eating more protein than they actually need. Correct. And so, then- so there's a couple of, you know, Sean is linear. Sean eats the same, he works out the same, and he's on a linear trajectory to be bigger and better. Another guy that you can look at is a guy like Robert Sykes, the uh, the Keto Savage. And and he's a bodybuilder, so he primes himself for competition. And throughout the year, he's fluctuating in terms of what he's doing. So 
he will build up muscle and he's got a certain protein fat ratio for that. He also likes to build the strength and the thickness of his muscle when he's off competition. So his body fluctuates massively and he's a very worthwhile guy to follow because he analyzes all of this. And then you've got a guy like Zach Bitter who goes out and runs two 30, 30 mile um, ultra distance marathons for training on a Saturday and a Sunday. Zach is this big, but he has to consume massive amounts of food. There are people that we can look at, but here's really, and I I think for the audience, it could be lay audience, it could be more people, more sophisticated. What we're really talking about is the way the body works, and you know this, the gut breaks protein that we eat down into amino acids. And there are 21 amino acids, 20, maybe 21 amino acids that we use, and the body rebuilds those. So what we're talking about is protein transformation. And really what we're looking at is the Uh, balance, or I hate the word balance, but the switch from protein synthesis, um, which is a fixed controlled system, to protein degradation, which is very, very volatile. So the human body can only make protein from amino acids at a fixed rate. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that govern or that help the body to make protein. And then the breakdown occurs with cellular turnover, so that's kind of at a fixed rate, but it can be accelerated. In other words, what I said earlier on, you can't store protein. So when you eat all those amino acids, you have to get rid of them somehow. So what you're talking about with nitrogen balance is, are you consuming and building more protein? Is protein synthesis greater? That's called a positive protein balance. Or is the breakdown of your own protein and the protein you're eating, that's a negative nitrogen balance. And You've got growth conditions and breakdown conditions. And under those conditions, the um, protein synthesis quota can only exceed the degradation uh, process if you're eating more. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let's look at what causes protein stimulation, protein growth, and protein degradation. The most important hormone that results, that triggers protein growth or protein building is growth hormone. Right. That's its job. So you've got to look at the pituitary gland. You've got to look at growth hormone levels. That stimulates protein synthesis by a product called somatomedins. And those are things that live locally in the muscle. Uh, thyroid hormone, T4 and T3, are controlled by TSH from the pituitary gland. Right. Same place you get growth hormone. And then insulin actually inhibits protein synthesis. Okay, so and then the somatostatin inhibits growth hormone and TSH and insulin. So we've got all these hormones um, that are controlling protein synthesis, and then cortisol directly inhibits protein synthesis. Right. So that's your stress hormone. Yeah. So if your stress hormones are up, you're blocking protein synthesis, and all of those things are important because cortisol triggers protein degradation. So if your stress hormone levels are up and the stress hormones, cortisol is a a steroid hormone, but the adrenalines, the noradrenalines are not steroid hormones. So all of, we've got to understand the interaction of all of those. And that's why you have that surge of, of sugar in the morning, the dawn effect, which is not just the release of sugar, but it's also the conversion of excess protein to sugar in the morning. Right. Um, And, and you've got to look at growth hormone, insulin, somatomedins, all of those. And remember what I said earlier on is that your T3 and T4 in a carnivore are very low, right. which means it's going to affect protein synthesis. So exactly what you said is that 
a guy like Sean Baker, whose TSH and T3, at least who's T3 and T4 may be on the lower side, or somebody who's, who's a protein veteran or a carnival veteran, they may be low. So they're not able to produce protein that much. And if they're eating all this protein, it gets shoved to sugar, and that's where the problem comes in. But I'm seeing the problem not with those folks, but with the high fat eaters. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But you're seeing it. So if the because it's then the question becomes, I mean, if you need to get sufficient calories to well, let's flip this around because you can't <laughs> just look at it at a caloric load. You've got to look at it distributionally. Okay. And um, if protein synthesis happens during and after a meal, right under the influence of insulin, under the influence of growth hormone. And remember, when you're eating, you're not bouncing around and shoving your cortisol level through the roof. Right. So eating is kind of a relaxed state for the human body, yes. and it's pro-synthesis. So, but if you're only eating once a day, and what excess fat does, it also suppresses appetite. So these folks are going long periods of time during which they're having that protein degradation phase. And that's why it's based on that information that I ask these folks to, to break up their meals to multiple small meals a day. So they increase the level of synthesis and try to get into a positive nitrogen balance. I, it I really, not, it, sorry, it may not be a ratio problem. It may actually be a frequency problem. Yeah. And I, um, just from my own history of trying to do one meal a day and then my blood sugar going up and just feeling really tired after so much protein in one sitting, um, I switched to two meals on average, sometimes three, but in general, even if your gut is impaired, it's just ideal to eat multiple times today to just to have better chances of your small intestine absorbing. Um, if you have any bile imbalances, like you've never eaten a ton of fat before and all of a sudden you're eating ribeyes, um, maybe it's better to break it into three meals. So I'm in a complete agreement with you. I never thought about the actual protein synthesis as well, but it makes sense too, because a lot of my clients, when they do the one meal a day and they check their blood sugars and they never thought, oh, on a carnivore diet, my blood sugar would never be high. And they check. And then after just maybe two pounds of ribeye, their blood sugars are in the 160, 180s, which is extremely high for a carnivore. And that's when they realize, oh, maybe that's why I'm not sleeping through the night and such. So I'm in agreement with you with the multiple meals. Um, I just wonder, will that be enough to kind of do the protein synthesis? But then, and then just not have enough fat. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Well, okay, so, so let's look at one other. And, and really the way my mind works is, okay, here's a problem. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out as tangentially as we can right. why this problem exists. Absolutely. And we've looked at protein-fat ratio, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. We've looked at frequency of meals, this flux between insulin and glucagon, yes. which is very fine-tuned. Um, and also the other hormones, the cortisol versus growth hormone versus TSH, because your thyroid hormone also fluctuates diurnally through the day. Yes. But let me ask you this. Um, all carnivores, all wild carnivores, mm-hmm. what do they eat? Meat. They eat wild animals. Right. Have you ever eaten deer meat? Me personally, no. How much fat is there? It's very in, lean. Very lean. 
Right. Okay. Now, what the what the carnival, big carnival animals, the big cats, and I come from Africa. I've seen tons of this. Okay. Uh, what the big cats do is they start with a belly and they eat the organs first. So that again is an argument pro organ. They start in the belly, but what else is in the belly is all the fat of the antelope is in the belly. That's mm-hmm. they keep visceral fat. Um, so they go for the they go for the organs. They go for the fat, but that's also a way to stock up on their micronutrients. Then they eat the meat, and the meat has almost no fat. There are no antelope in Africa that are wild that have a huge amount of muscular fat. Right. Cows are are an anomaly when it comes to the way cows and sheep are an anomaly in terms of where they keep their fat. Does that make sense? Yes. And one of the key things about cows and sheep is they don't have to be afraid. And what I mean by that is all the antelope, the, the animals, the mammals that other carnivores eat oh, they have to- are continuously afraid. They're continuously skittish and running around and um, they don't sit on a couch and watch TV while they're eating grass right. like cows do. Yeah. So therefore the fat finishing, even of grass-fed uh, domesticated animals, that fat content is much, much higher. And the argument for cutting back on fat is to look at the lipid profile of my carnival veterans, but saying, okay, these folks are a little bit more like, let's say, a lion. And maybe they should eat what the lion eats. I'm not going to banish them from eating the organs, but I'm going to say eat more lean protein and let's see what happens with that. So I'm in the experimental phase with that, but that's where my logic comes in. I don't know whether the science is going to prove this, we're going to figure it out. Right. And the beauty is we can track this. And then there's one other thing that I think is important to discuss in this kind of forum. Let me ask you before yeah. we move on is yeah. with the lean protein, when you say that, what, what would you say is lean protein, right? Because I mean, some people try to do just chicken breast for a while, like the, um, the protein sparing modified fast, and it's nearly impossible because you're always ravenous, right? Your body has to break down the amino acids. So I'm guessing you're not talking that lean, but you know what? Yeah, I mean, chicken breast is one tuna, or the bigger the game fish, the muscles of game fish is okay. another one, and then also um, the leaner animals, the leaner cuts of the animal, the fillet, uh, that kind of thing. Where the psoas muscle, for example, is a muscle where there's very little fat; the fat is on the outside. So when you're eating that, that way, uh, even if it's beef, that's the, you know, don't go for the marbled beef, go right. for the cuts that are more pure protein, your fillets, that kind of thing. Um, eggs, uh, instead of adding three yolks to the egg, maybe add three whites to the, uh, uh, to the yolk. Um, so you're bumping up your protein category, your protein consumption in that way. Have you personally tried that though? Because I've tried a leaner, like a few leaner days of, um, just proteins and I feel much more hungrier. Oh, you get ravenous. You absolutely. And Sean says the same thing. You get ravenously hungry. So the point (laughs) is, it's not that you eliminate fat, you cut back on the excess fat. If you're at a 70, 30, and we've got to talk grams of calories, but if you're at a a 70, 30 protein to fat, you can cut that back down to maybe a 50, 50 or a 60, 40. And that works pretty well. Okay. Um, Yeah. I think 60, maybe I I have a hard time seeing my clients work on the 50, 50, because I think that's where they'll feel ravenous all the time and they're wanting to eat all the time. And that's that's when when you let them eat to it. That's why we introduce the two or three meals a day instead of just one meal a day. 
Right. But my clients eat in ge- because in general, I recommend two to three meals. So when yeah. they eat the two meals and maybe they're eating 50, 50, it's interesting. So my clients that eat like the 70, 30, 80, 20, oh, it's not really 80, 20, but in general, 75% fat, 25% protein. And then I ask them maybe if they're kind of gaining weight. So, okay, let's do two days of leaner proteins, not really any added fats. They'd rather fast then do that because it right. feels miserable for them to just eat constant protein and they feel ravenous, you know, like their body is like thermogenically working up in the body. But you know, what's interesting is that flies against what Andrea says, what Ted Naiman says. I know, I know say. that. So I think that part of that is also adjustment. If you mm-hmm. suddenly change your diet on one day, the next day, you're going to feel awful. No matter what you've done, it's because we tend to be rabbits in this world, in the authoritarian carnival world, we tend to be rabbits, not tortoises. Mm. And if you take your time and modify that eating pattern over the course of maybe a month, maybe you adapt to it a little bit differently. But there's no question when you're eating leaner protein as your body adjusts, because remember, not only is it your gut adjusting to this, your whole biology has to adjust to where its fuel's coming from. So if your cells are saying, hey, I need fat, I need ketones, I need uh, uh, non-esterified fatty acids, and you're giving them sugar, that's problematic. Because anytime, and here's the key thing, anytime you eat protein, lean protein, your insulin goes up. And insulin blocks fat mobilization. So even just a tiny shift in insulin bumps up by one point. So you go from 2.4 to 3.4, non-noticeable. But that's blocking fat mobilization. So now you're hungry because between meals, you don't have an energy substrate. So all of those factors have to come in. And I think if you're going to make any changes, make it subtly and slowly, slowly transition. You know, don't just leap into this. The same thing with newbies in keto or carnivore. They leap in. They go from, you know, eating a pizza, a tub of ice cream, and a gallon of Coke to eating, you know, uh, a cow. One meal a day. And they feel awful. Yeah, one meal a day. And they feel terrible, and they crash, and they burn. So I think doing it stepwise and easing your way in is the right way to go because there is evidence to the contrary in people who I trust and people who are Zoe Harkham, Ted Naiman, uh, Andreas Infeld, these are icons that I look up to um, who've all reported the same thing. Um, Zoe actually did a whole, I don't know if you know who Zoe Harkham is. Um, oh, you, you, need to, you need to connect okay. with her. Uh, Zoe Harkham is a dietitian in the UK. Um, she is basically a statistician dietitian, and uh, she's one of the three women that defended Tim Noakes at his trial. Oh, okay. 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 Uh, Zoe Harkin, we wrote a book together called Unpacking Diabetes. So she's been in this arena forever. And she does something, and I would urge your listeners to do this, urge you to do this. She does something called the Monday Newsletter. Uh, In fact, I've got a copy of it here. Um, And every, every Monday, she takes a particularly pertinent topic, and she breaks it down statistically. So one of the things that she's talking about here is specifically, this, this is what she's talking about. Should low carb be high fat or high protein? And then she goes to the literature and breaks down some of those studies. Uh, all you have to do is Google her, H-A-R-C-O-N-B-E. You sign up for a Monday newsletter. I'm fascinated by what she produces. And a lot of my talks come from what she and I talk about or she and I share. So she's absolutely phenomenal in terms of, what she breaks down, and she speaks from a very pragmatic perspective, not a biased perspective. And as I said, this one, which came out, I think it was, this is April, which is where um, she highlighted the fact that, well, you know what, maybe we're overeating fat. So along those lines, 
I think that a lot of carnivores overeat salt. Overeat salt? See, that's interesting. So I don't know how much you believe in the hair mineral test. Um, I do a lot of them and I see that uh, there's a lot of carnivores that are burning through their salt and then that then will also cause them to have very def- a deficiency in potassium. And then their calcium and magnesium start um, leaking out, I guess, um, through their cells and not in their blood work yet. And so sometimes the thought is that with that, that's why their vitamin D is low. It's a protective mechanism, right? So if they're leaching out some of the calcium from their bones, um, you don't want bone spurs everywhere. And so the vitamin D is in, um, intentionally low. A couple of things about sodium regulation. The human body entirely depends on sodium and chloride right. for, for blood fluid and blood pressure management. Yeah. So a large part of the human biology is geared toward complete normonatremia. Okay. You, the, blood, the, the blood sodium and most of the salt is in the bloodstream varies very, very little. We test right. this all the time and it doesn't vary by more than two or three points off 140. So it's very tightly regulated. Right. Sometimes you'll see it a little lower. So, but the entire system of the human body is designed to regulate sodium, whereas blood sugars fluctuate like crazy and sugar is the other molecule that governs blood body fluid. Sodium also is tightly preserved in the kidney. And what most people don't understand is that sodium is primarily preserved in the colon. So the colon can either secrete or absorb. Your largest trans, uh, uh, transport of sodium happens in the, in the colon. Okay. So both in terms of net absorption and net secretion. The kidneys are second and the sweat is third. And hydration is not about water. Hydration is about salt. Right. If you're at a sodium deficit, you will exchange magnesium, potassium, and calcium, the other protons. The kidneys will preserve salt and pee those others out. Yes. But I test magnesium in everybody. And I've never seen low magnesium. I mean, I say never. It is as rare as rocking horse manure for me to see low magnesiums or affected magnesium or even potassium. They're always very consistent when we measure the blood numbers. Right. So, so I, and I agree with that. Most electrolytes or minerals are balanced in the blood because if you think about blood, it's kind of a transport system. So the body wants it to always be super balanced until it can't, right? So if you start seeing imbalances with potassium and magnesium in your blood, that's when things are pretty serious. Whereas the hair tissue analysis is kind of what's going on in your cells within a snapshot of time. Just like, let's say like the A1C is a snapshot of your red blood cells instead of just that momentary glucose. So the thought is that getting your minerals through a blood blood work is just a snapshot that your body does everything right so like your calcium will always show balance in your blood and without knowing it you may have osteoporosis or osteopenia right but everyone's focused on on vitamin d for calcium it's actually controlled by parathyroid hormone right th and and so the control of calcium your your bones are basically a bank for calcium right up to the age of about 20 25 to 28 you're adding to those bones Okay. After, after about 28 years of age, male and female, you stop growing your bones. There's bone turnover. And okay. until women get menopausal or until men get into their 50s and 60s, that is static. And then after that, you make withdrawals from that bank. And right. the rate at which you make the withdrawals or not is governed by PTH, vitamin D and calcium consumption. Yeah. But you cannot grow your bones 
after the age of 28. You okay. cannot additionally deposit. And that whole thing of extrophic calcification, calcium, that is as rare as rocking horse manure. We've seen it. You get dystrophic calcification. Uh, we see that bone formation, but it's usually a biologic abnormality. It doesn't happen in normal. You also got to remember that 96% of your potassium is intracellular right. and only 4% is intravascular, whereas 95 to 98% of your sodium is intravascular. Okay. Very little is in the, most of it's in the membrane of cells because sodium is a, is a transport molecule. Okay. And then the final piece uh, to look at is that a large governor of sodium potassium balance is pH. Yeah. Blood pH. Right. And if you look at, I mean, this is an old, old book from my medical school days. Mm -hmm. And it says it's the acid truth and basic facts with a sweet touch and enlightenment, L-Y-T-E. And this is the holy grail of uh, electrolyte balance based on pH, based on, uh, and all of those things are affected. So to look at one molecule and supplement with that one molecule is crazy. It's the entirety of everything. And if you look at, and I'm just bringing this up as a, as a concept, I consume a ton of salt, but I'm not sure that's entirely appropriate. First of all, meat in general has a lot of sodium in it. It has a lot of all the electrolytes in it. It's not that they're electrolyte poor. And I'm not saying don't supplement, but if you, if you know a guy called the bear, um, yeah. I can't remember what he's, but Oslo he's been, something. yeah, he's been eight years, no salt. So Again, there you've got an experiment. I'm not certain I agree with that completely. Right. This is a debate I'm having with uh, Doug Reynolds and a couple other guys where um, people are now starting to say, okay, carnivores say, hey, let's back off on the salt. And I have concerns about backing off, but I do think we've gone overboard with magnesium supplementation and sodium supplementation and all these, everyone's on calcitrol and they're on mag glycinate. Or, now they're on mag citrate, which is basically a laxative. It doesn't right. get absorbed. So- I'm just throwing out the caution that we, the beauty about being carnivore is we don't need much more than what we eat. And I agree with that for the most part. So, you know, as you heal, then you don't need supplements. There's oh. no question that we're not talking about early on. We're talking about the carnivore veterans. Yes. Oh, early, oh, oh, on, early on, you want to correct the mistakes. Right, right. Early so the mistakes. salt, um, so the thing about salt is I think there were numbers done where maybe you have to eat two pounds to get an order to get enough of the sodium that you would need in your daily. And I don't know well, the exact numbers. But, but so wait can... a minute. You see, this is again, the same issue. Okay. Is I understand that we've worked out sodium requirements sure. based on standard American diet. Okay. People. okay fair but enough. When you're a carnivore, do you really, if you don't need much in the way of B12 to get a B12 up to 2000, <laughs> is the same not true for your body's improved utilization sure. of electrolytes? Because the body is highly conservationistic. Yes. When it comes to processes. Now, the, the beauty about the human body is that when it functions normally, those processes are incredibly tight. But when you have excess, the body has this huge capacity, what we call futile cycles. Mm -hmm. And for example, protein, the negative nitrogen balance is a futile cycle where it's spinning between fat and protein. Well, the same thing is true when you're in a very, very tight hormonal, I hate the word balance, but when you're in that vibrational state, you, your fluxes of electrolytes just aren't there. That's where in that, in that high carnivore thing, when you overdo even electrolytes, you may be throwing that out of, out of whack. 
And I, and I get that in the way that you're explaining it, but in what I'm seeing in my practice is that if we understand that our soils are depleted, so even our cows that are eating the grass, there's less minerals, right? In the Carnivore Cure book, I showed mineral changes in just 20 years in a lot of our fruits and vegetables. It's a lot lower for sure. all minerals. That was one thought is maybe a lot of us are deficient in minerals. And the only reason I looked into this is because most people on a carnivore diet, I would say struggle with the electrolyte imbalance, they say I've added. So the, the kind of solution or the bandaid that people do in the end is I've, I decided to add back more, a few more fruits and plants because I cannot get my electrolyte. Well, in the middle of the night, I have well, like, they're making an assumption. They're calling something electrolytes when they have no proof. <laughs> there's no, there's zero evidence that these people have that electrolyte imbalance. So, oh, I've got muscle cramps. It must be potassium. It's muscle cramps. It must be magnesium. Because somebody on the internet yesterday said that's what the problem was. So they're investing in these massive amounts of things that they're taking with an assumption that my leg cramps, and then magically in a placebo way, the leg cramps get better. So, oh, it must be that. Or, oh, I've got to eat fruit. And you've got all these voices on the internet talking about stuff. I add salt fairly liberally. I love Redmond Real Salt. Um, it is what I enjoy. I actually add a little bit of iodized salt. But I think as I'm looking at myself, I'm, I'm rethinking that, you know what, I did pretty well to my current age without eating a lot of salt. Okay. And, and now I'm adding these massive amounts. Yes, my body can get rid of that huge amounts, but I'm not sure that electrolytes are, again, purely the answer. I think we need way lower numbers of electrolytes because I just have no evidence to support what people are saying about electrolyte deficiencies. And I don't have biologic evidence. I don't have, and it's, you're right, it's not just what's in the blood, but what's in the blood reflects every other space in the human body. And if you look at the pH, if you look at the bicarb, uh, which we measure on everybody, the yeah. CO2, if anybody's looking at HCO2 or CO2, that reflects your acid-base status. Sure. And those are, are highly, highly conserved in human beings. And they govern the flux of electrolytes. Nobody is electrolyte deficient. It depends on the electrolyte uh, level in each cavity, in each space. Nobody's globally uh, sodium deficient because they'd be dead. Right. Okay. So, I mean, when you, for, okay. So when there are electrolyte imbalances, you know, when people are really low in potassium, they're, they're on an IV and most of that sodium. So the but question, let, me, let me just stop you there. Cause I deal with when people okay. puke a lot and as a bariatric surgeon, when your right. patients who puke a lot, well, you're puking out hydrochlor, uh, hydrochloric acid, you're puking sure. out acid and your, your blood then turns alkaline and your, your potassium levels drop. So the point is that is not, a lack of potassium. This is the whole point I'm making. That's a shift of potassium out of the blood space into the uh, um, cellular space. And the right thing there to do is to correct the acid-base balance. Yes, we add potassium because cardiovascular is so important, but it's a temporary fix. Sure. We add it as a bolus to keep that patient alive. But our pools, our, the, the whole body pool of sodium, potassium, calcium, all of those things is massive. Even if you've got osteopenia or osteoporosis, mm -hmm. you still have an extraordinary amount of calcium to keep your calcium levels low. Calcium levels go abnormal when your parathyroid is out of whack, when your vitamin Ds are, when your uh, osteoclasts are working well. It is not about the consumption of the mineral. 
It's about oh, yeah. the release and the balance within the spaces. Yes, we have to add to that pool slowly. But the question is the magnitude. By I mean, if you look at the amount of salt that people are consuming, it's through the roof. And part of the concern there is it probably isn't biologically necessary, but it makes us a target for everybody else that believes salt is so bad for us. Well, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But maybe it's also this our stress levels, right? So cortisol or the adrenals, right? They love uh, aldosterone, love sodium. So maybe yeah. it's... Oh, the, the entirety of the renin, angiotensin 1, angiotensin 2, right. that entire system exists in the human body to govern one thing, sodium. Okay, it's, it's all about salt. All the blood pressure medications that we, that we put patients on, almost sure. all of them mess with the sodium renin-angiotensin right. thing. The ACE inhibitors, the, they all mess with that, the, the uh, um, angiotensin inhibitors, they all mess with that sodium-potassium uh, or the sodium chloride system. So it is fundamental to being human. And the point is, when you are at a salt deficiency, a true biological salt deficiency, you're dead. Right, right. There's something that we used to see in our, in our liver transplant patients where their sodium level would go down into the 127, 128 range, which is only 10 or 12 points below where it should, or 20 points below where it should be. Their brains are infarcting. They're getting sent something called central pontine myelinolysis, where their brains just die. The, wow. the middle of the brain just dies. And that is a minor shift down of sodium. So, and that's again, the liver function that happened in, in liver transplant, some liver transplant patients. And the concern with that is that, as I said, we, I think we way overemphasize the consumption of salt. Having salt in your food, absolutely. Do lions in Africa go to the salt licks and drink brack? Absolutely they do. But not, they don't sit there and shake salt on every antelope that they kill. And that's the key thing. And the more metabolically healthy you are, the less you need massive input of stuff. Okay, that that I fully agree with. Maybe it's just the people that I'm seeing have the electrolyte imbalances are people that are still in the newbie phase and not in the veteran. There, there, there's just a handful of influencers, I'd say, in the social media space where they said, I could never balance my electrolytes and therefore I added fruit, right? Because then you start retaining more sure. water. Um, but I, I just think it's a Band-Aid. Um, why would you say then that some people are labeling that they have electrolyte imbalance because they're getting leg cramps in the middle of the night? So, but the point there is it's not, and this is the, this is the distinction I'm making. It may be an electrolyte imbalance, but it's not a, an electrolyte deficit. It means oh, okay. that that's the, that's the point I'm trying to make is your body. If I took your whole body and I melted it down, and I extracted all the electrolytes, they would be exactly what you need. Right. Right. You know, I, the, the simple argument is this, and this is the whole egg argument. How much cholesterol is there in an egg? How much potassium is there in an egg? How much fat is there in an egg? How much pro exactly, exactly the right amount to make a chicken. Right. Uh, you know, and it doesn't matter if that egg comes from some broiler chicken that's, sure. that's in a cage that's being fed stuff, or it comes from some free-range, beautiful, healthy chicken. Sure, sure. All of those eggs, when fertilized, become a chicken. So it's not like they're running at a massive sodium deficit. They've got everything in there, and they've got the capacity to make a chicken out of that diversity. So it is not a substrate deficiency. It is an imbalance within sure. the muscle system. 
because it's shifted out or whatever it is. Your lactic acid may be a little high, but people are assuming that they're low in electrolytes and that's where the BS is. Most people are not. They may not be in the compartment where they should be, but it's not that they have a deficiency. And, and that is, everybody runs to, I've got to put more in my face. The, the same thing when somebody says, oh, I'm hungry. Hunger in the modern era has nothing to do with biology. You're not hungry because your selenium levels are low. But what, what do people say? I'm hungry, I've got to eat. Or I'm feeling weak, I need calories. So with my bariatric patients, these are enormous people mm -hmm. that I do surgery on. And for the few weeks after the surgery, they don't consume calories because the surgery is healing. Right. Oh, I'm hungry. I have to eat my nutrition. It's got, you're walking around, you're 300 pounds. You are not at a calorie deficit. That, that is just a shift away from glucose to burning fat. But the perception by everybody is I have to consume more. And the bizarre thing about hunger, if you do a fast, if you do a 72-hour fast, I assume you've done them, at yeah. two and three days, are you hungry? No, your hunger goes away. Right. So it cannot be a biological nutritional deficiency. It's a mental state. Because if it was a biological nutritional deficiency, your hunger would increase and increase and increase. And in fact, it goes away. Right. And that's part of the problem with carnivores is they, they're not hungry, especially with the high fat. So we've got to make a distinction between levels within our body and compartment shifts versus absolute deficiency. And most people are not absolutely electrolyte deficient. Most people are compartmentally challenged. Sure. Okay. And that's, that's the, that's the challenge that that's just really what I'm, what I'm trying to say. So we over put that in and because we, we assume that I've got a leg cramp, I'm deficient in magnesium. I must eat it. Whereas you may be deficient in magnesium in your muscles, but you've got tons of it in your liver or elsewhere in your body. And it's just getting it to your muscles that's the problem. Right. Um, yeah. And I, there are actually a lot of studies that show that magnesium, when taken orally, takes nine months to even move the needle just a little bit. So, I mean, that's where I just have my clients sometimes use a little bit of magnesium spray and put it on their leg at night just because it's topical. I know it's a Band-Aid, like you're um, saying, but but it helps them in um, those moments. Um, what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, when you are first starting carnivore, this isn't really the discussion for you, but that's when, if you need to do high fat, just get off the insulin roller coaster, balance hormones, do all of that. But once you are kind of in the, I've done this for a year plus, and, you know, insulin is low, all of the mar markers you mentioned, like triglycerides are low, your C peptide, et cetera. Um, but then if you just, you, if you start checking your markers and your like triglycerides are going up, blood sugar, A1C, et cetera, then maybe you want to shift from just a high fat to maybe consuming a little bit more protein or at least dropping a little bit of the ex, um, extra added fats and then maybe even try multiple meals. First of all, you said it's not for, for people just starting carnivore. Absolutely. They may not be doing this, but absolutely it's incentive to be strict about your carnivore, because really what we're talking about is that on a carnivore diet over time, your body becomes supremely efficient. Right. And what, what we fail to do is to recognize the efficiency. So we are still throwing things into the body as if it is behaving in an inefficient way. Mm -hmm. And that may be a concern. So the first part of carnivore is to restore normal health. And then the second part is to understand that we've got this vibrational efficiency and we don't have to add a lot to that. You know, you've got those um, machines where uh, you, you have the ball on one side and it 
it goes tick tock, tick tock, right, you know, right. across, and and it just never stops stops work. That's kind of how the body works, and it needs very very little to be added to the system to maintain that uh, um, that normality. One of the very interesting things, and Gary Taubes um, uh, and a group of us have been talking about this. If you look back at historically, at the hunter gatherer and early people, there was no cancer. Yeah. Cancer did not exist. There was no evidence in those early missionaries that went to Africa, that went to South, they didn't see cancer. And a large part of the restoration of that incredibly efficient system is that the the human body becomes supremely efficient at correcting little mistakes. Mm. The problem with cancer is these massive mistakes uncorrected happen. And it's the same whether you're talking about electrolytes or protein or everything else is the problems happen when you're unhealthy, when you're out of balance, as you say, and you get these massive shifts. When you are a veteran carnivore, those shifts don't happen. They're vibrations. And the human body is self-correcting. That's the beauty about it. And I think if we overeat, overconsume a certain thing, you actually shift that efficiency out of whack. And that's a concern that I have. So that eight-year veteran is not eating salt. It's because he doesn't need very much. Mm. But early on, you may need some. So you're right. This is really a conversation for the veterans, but it should be incentive and inspiration for people to want to get there because this is the holy grail of human, of, of human biology. And I, and I have to agree with you. I mean, so I use supplements in the very beginning because I was plant-based for 12 years. I've been carnivore for over three years. Sometimes I'll have a few plants just to be non-dogmatic, but I've noticed some changes. Exercise in the morning, I used to feel very low energy and now I can exercise and it's not a big deal. So my energy is very consistent. Whereas in the first year or so, I felt low energy and I felt like, oh, it's my electrolytes, right? And, and I don't feel that. But I think I just... Can I just... You just said yeah. something here. I think it's, this is another very valid thing is that fatigue lasts a very long time when you convert. So don't go carnival for two days and expect your fatigue to vanish. <laughs> it's going to take months to years to right. get into that efficiency state, but you've got the rest of your life to live. Right. So if you, take, if you take your current age and age 100, that's how long you want to live for. And fatigue going away in a couple of days. Oh, these, and we then ascribe that, that poor energy level. Oh, it's this, it's this. No, it, the body doesn't work that way. It's a very slow pathway to efficiency. And that's why the sustainability of this way of life, even three years is a very short period of time. It is. Uh, you know, I started my journey 22 years ago. Have I had relapses? Have I had bounces and bumps from that? Of course I have. Am I perfect? Hell no, I'm not. But I've seen evolution every year of getting healthier and better through that. Um, and that's the beauty about this ride is that it gets better and better and better. And it's the sustainability, but don't expect magic to happen in a day. In the carnivore space, a lot of the women, um, especially when they start in their fifties and sixties, say that they have Hashimoto's or hypothyroid. And so they always ask me and I tell them, you know, we may have a new normal. My TSH is um, low. My T4 is low, but my T3 is also below range actually, but I'm nursing my son who's five and I get my menstruation every month. So I think I'm pretty good, but it's not enough. Right. So people are like, well, all these other thyroid specialists say that I need to get on medication because my T3 is out of range and you should feel a lot of fatigue. Well, they're looking at one number, right? You have to look at the human body. It works like a very fine tuned Swiss watch. 
every cog integrates with every cog. And you can't look at one thing and say, oh, that's out of whack. Every, let's treat that. More and more doctors do blood work to find an abnormal number to throw a pill at it. And they ignore numbers where they don't have a pill for it. Right. So that's why I use the type 1 example. Most of these patients would be categorized by type, as type 1 diabetics by the endocrinologist who look at one number. But the A1Cs are below 5. Their blood sugars are normal. So you can't say that. You've got to look at the integration. T3 by itself is usually low in a veteran carnivore. Yeah. But so is their TSH. So is their T4. And it's not an iodine deficiency. So you can't look at one thing um, and say, oh, this is deficient. Whether it's electrolytes, whether it's protein, whether it's fat, whatever it is, you've got to look at the entire spectrum of what we do. And we've forgotten how to do that as healthcare workers. <laughs> I, I'm certainly not better than anybody. And, and the first thing I'll declare to patients is that, or to people that come and see me is, I know certain things. I don't know certain things. I'm seeing certain things that I can't explain. Mm -hmm. Let's be part of this kind of experiment and let's work right. it out. That's the first thing. Um, the second thing is, I'll tell them this. When there's a particular political fact and you put on, let's say Fox News, Sean Hannity is going to have a particular perspective of that fact. Then you put on MSNBC and Rachel Maddow is going to have the polar opposite opinion of the same fact. And they'll never be on the same page. Sure. That is what has happened in healthcare because totally. it's more opinion-based than biology or factually based. I'm going to have an opinion based on what I see in my experience. Your other doctors are going to have this uh, polar opposite opinion. However, when it comes to watching TV, you are the one with the control button. And exactly the same is true with healthcare. You look, and, and it's important to go and get my opinion and get the statin-pushing doctor's opinion and ask them probing questions. Ask me whatever probing questions you want to. And then you decide who you're going to follow. But one thing, one thing is absolutely certain, Jody. There's only one thing that's true, and that is we're all going to die. Right. Okay, so how we get there is our chosen pathway. We can choose how we get there. And you then have to live and die by your choice, not because some doctor gave you misinformation, but it's because you chose to believe that doctor's misinformation. We physicians are so afraid that if I don't put you on a statin and you have a heart attack, then it's my fault. Right. But if you have a heart attack on a statin, oh dear. It doesn't work that way. You make the choices based on the best available information, and we're all learning as we go. So if you want to come along for the ride, hitch your wagon to us, and we'll be as open and as transparent as we can be yes. about our knowledge and our lack of knowledge and how our knowledge changes. That's why I bring up the low salt thing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But it's a, it is absolutely correct to question it and then to do the experiment so that we can find the truth. If you are, you must eat salt, or no, you shouldn't eat salt, we're screwed because you're never going to come to the truth. I think we're on the same page in so many things of there's a lot we don't know, and, um, but you see trends, and that's exactly what I was seeing, and that's exactly why I wanted you on because these are such nuances that people say, carnivore is so simple, you're complicating it, and it's actually – not as simple, especially if you're doing it long term, or if you had certain metabolic disease or other things. So I think this is really good, especially for people that have been doing carnivore for a while. So thank you so much for this conversation. Any on any long journey, the landscape changes. It's totally. never the same. On a carnivore journey, the landscape changes, your biology changes. Yeah. Don't expect 
the same landscape throughout the journey. Accommodate to the new to the new landscape as you progress. It gets better. So that's the that's the, this is a journey. It's not a place to be. It's let me continue. Let yeah. me ask you one last question. Um, do you think that people can do? Because there's a lot of people that don't believe this. That's what I'm asking. Um, do you believe that you can do carnivore forever? You know what? Lions have to become vegetarians as they grow older. Absolutely. Okay. No, they don't. I was like, what? <laughs> no, of course okay. you can. I mean, no, that was me being facetious. Um, you know, when a lion gets six years old, it says, no, I've got to go and eat plants. No, of course you can. And the human biology is geared toward doing this, but you've got to understand what you're doing. So can you do carnivore for the rest of your life? Absolutely. But should it be the same carnivore? Yeah. Absolutely not. Okay. You've got yeah. to look at the feedback. And that's why I say the landscape's changing. Your body becomes better. It becomes more efficient. And as it evolves, you've got to evolve your diet with that landscape. That's the key. And you've got to know who you are. And that's, if anything, if you ask me who I am, what we do, if anything, I'm not there for, I'm there to tell people how to start. And then I'm there to give people guidance or insight along the journey that they are better at following than I am knowing. So my job is to empower people to know and understand what they're doing better than I do, because it's your body, it's your, it's your life. And I can give you guidelines, just like we talked about now, and you're going to think about it, I'm going to think about certain things. That's why I love these talks. So that's what we do. The first thing is do no harm. The second thing is stop making people unhealthy and give them the tools to make themselves as healthy as they can be should they choose that pathway. That's what we do. And we've got a bunch of tools and a bunch of experience and a bunch of direction that we can do that on. Well, thank so, you. You know, you can find me on my YouTube channel. It's Carb Addiction Doc. I'm also on Instagram. I have a presence on Facebook, but I'm just too busy to spend time on Facebook. I am an addict. I'm a carb addict, which we didn't even talk about. So when it comes to Facebook, I just can't get off it. Just like this talk, it was supposed to be a short thing. We just carried on and on, but it's for the love of what we do. So uh, uh, those are places that you can find me. If somebody wants a consult, uh, Eric code 561-517-0642, they can text that number or call and leave a message. But do understand, please be patient. Uh, we are just overwhelmed with folks right now. I'm looking actually to add nurse practitioners, dietitians, certified diabetic educators to our team. It's myself and Jane, our dietitian at the moment, but we're looking to add experienced workers in this field who want to join our team. So that's a plug for growth. If you're interested in joining us, please give me a shout. And I'll put every, all the information in the show notes. So thank you again so much for this. Um, and I will, um, yeah, I'll talk to you soon. And I'm sure we'll, it'll be interesting to see how Carnivore grows over the years. Great. It's, it really has been a great journey so far and there's more to come. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, guys, I hope that this information is helpful and that you are seeing maybe different levers that you can pull while being on a carnivore diet. And just even with your blood work, you know, what to kind of look for to maybe fine tune your diet. Let us know if you want to see more evidence-based research and findings on upcoming episodes. All right, guys, you know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. 
If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.